0: Today I want to look at one of the biggest questions in life. Does God exist? Now I believe the answer is a clear yes, but I want to go through every field of science and look at the actual evidence. We're going to look at all the seven fields of science, biology, genetics, anthropology, paleontology, chemistry, geology, and physics. And I'm going to show you the one aspect of each of these fields of science that points the most towards God. So that's gonna be our goal today. So we're gonna walk away with confidence in our faith, confidence in knowing that there is evidence of God existing. But before we look at the specific science, I just want to talk about a few things. So first is that for most of human history, there's been no division between religion and science when it comes to whether or not God exists. Whenever someone has talked about science, they've mostly just been trying to look at how God created the world. But this all changed Um, at one specific point in time. And that's in 1859, when Charles Darwin released his book, Origin of Species. And this is because this book was the first major uh, popular theory which described the origin of life which did not require God's existence. So all the anyone who didn't want to follow God Anyone who was looking for a naturalistic ex- explanation of the universe, they went to this, and so they they took this and they ran with it, and they applied uh, this this evolutionary theory to every aspect of life. So let's look at what evolution means. This means that there's uh, countless small changes have happened over billions of years to lead to the diversity of species that we see today. So, life began with bacteria and single-celled um, organisms, and then it became slightly more complex and more and more complex, and then there were creatures in the sea that went to land, and then it became plants, animals. So, according to the theory of evolution, every single thing that we see that's alive today shares common ancestry if you go far back enough everything came from the same single-celled organisms so that's the definition of evolution now within evolution there's some uh, there's some differences so uh there are two types that are worth mentioning so there's naturalistic evolution versus, and theistic evolution so natural means that there's absolutely no supernatural forces. There is no God. Everything that happens, ha- happens according to the laws of nature. And there's no need for God whatsoever. Uh, everything uh, happened because of natural selection, and just everything was completely natural. No room for anything supernatural in this theory. And a, a, a lo- with that is theistic evolution, which has mostly the same beliefs and result. But in terms of theistic evolution, they believe that the origin of life and many other aspects of evolution were, were guided by God, were orchestrated by him, began by him, that God God's hand was at work throughout the process of evolution. So today in this video, I am not gonna be talking about theistic evolution. I'm not going to try to either prove or disprove theistic evolution. Everything that I'm talking about today is naturalistic evolution. What people from the time of Darwin going forward uh, believed uh, that the world would and should and does look like, and how that compares to the actual evidence. So when it comes to science, science in general just means a systematic study of the world. What happens, how it happens, how we can predict it, and how we can even use these natural scientific laws to benefit our life. Now when it comes to science, science should follow the facts regardless of which direction the evidence may lead if everything looks natural they should go in a natural direction but if there are some things that can't be explained naturally maybe that a miracle is possible maybe that a a supernatural being did intervene if there's something that can't happen that we can't fully understand maybe that's the way it is but uh so the science should follow the facts regardless of where they lead. However, that's not really the way that that some scientists work. So this is just one quote from one person, but this is an accurate depiction of the way many scientists view the field. So if, if there is one rule, one criterion that makes an idea scientific it is that it must invoke naturalistic explanations for phenomena and those explanations must be testable solely by the criteria of our five senses. So. Everything we, everything that that we experience, that science must be a, a, a explainable from a naturalistic worldview. So, if anything points to anything supernatural, it's not science. You must go with a with whatever is natural at all costs, and we would call this an anti-supernatural bias. So, this is when you have the predetermined belief that everything must have a natural cause and explanation. So you immediately, before you even look at the evidence, before you consider certain possibilities, you remove any chance that anything supernatural could have happened. And that's not good. Again, that, that not all scientists believe that, but many do. So um, when it comes to the evidence we're going to see today, um, I, I just want to be sure that you understand uh, that the word prove is not something that I'm going to try to use. Because almost nothing can be proven. There's always some theory that can account for everything. Even when it comes to a court case, uh, th- there's there's absolutely no way to 100% prove something. There could always be some crazy theory that explains things in a different way. So even in a court case, what you want is that things have been shown beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's what we're gonna aim for today. So anything is possible when it comes to the explanations of the different things of science we're seeing, but our goal is to show that God exists, that there is design, that there is a creator, that there's someone guiding everything we see, and that that evidence shows that there is a God beyond a reasonable doubt. So let's go ahead and dive into science. I'm going to start with molecular biology, because that's actually the one that um, Darwin specifically gave us um, a way to try to disprove himself. So Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So today we would call this irreducible complexity. So the, the definition of that is it's a system which loses functionality if any part of the system is removed, a system which could not have developed from small incremental changes. So if something did break Darwin's theory, it would be considered irreducible complexity complexity. complexity, so something that's small but complex, where if you removed any part, it would not function, and there's no logical way that it would form on its own. So uh, there are a couple examples of this, the eye, blood clotting, the bombardier beetle, and uh, bacterial flagellum. Maybe I'll do a video in the future talking about these, but that's uh, not today. You can do your own research. All four of those, in my opinion, show very good arguments for irreducible complexity. But today I want to just talk about life, the the simple complexity of life. So the simplest Organism we know—it's called uh, Mycoplasma genitalium. It's a—it's a bacteria that lives in our stomachs and the stomachs of uh, many other animals. It's the smallest, simplest life form that we're aware of. But even this incredibly simple thing, in its in its genetic code, has over five hundred and eighty thousand uh, base pairs in its sequence. So even the simplest life form that we know. 580,000 base pairs. Now there's some evidence that shows that all of these 580,000 don't have to be in the exact same order, that there's some room for variation, but still 580,000 is the simplest form of life. How do you get from zero to 580,000? Again, scientists have theories, they have answers, but ultimately, anyone who is honest, when they see the complexity of the simplest life, will say that it points towards design, that it points towards a creator. The second aspect I want to look at is genetics. So uh, how things are inherited, how we get the hereditary, everything from our parents, how humans came to be. So uh, from the time of Darwin on, there was one specific theory, which by far most uh, scientists believed, and that was called multi-regional hypothesis, also called polygenism. So uh, when it comes to this, that means that humans evolved separately around the world from local hominid populations beginning millions of years ago. So to simplify this, it means that that the hominids are ape-like humans, that they they look somewhere between what we see with apes in the world and modern humans. So this theory goes that the hominids, the the ape-like creatures that existed in Africa, evolved to become Africans. The hominids that were in Asia evolved to become Asians. The same for Europe, same for South America, everywhere around the world all the different ape-like creatures separately uniquely uh, evolved to become modern humans of the different ethnicities we see today. That was by far the prevailing view. However, when we look at it today, this is not what people believe at all. So the current belief is that all humans have shared ancestry from northeast Africa. And even when we look at mitochondrial Eve, which is when you look at uh, the female genealogy that you can trace all the way back, and the Y-chromosome atom, where you can trace all male gene lines back to this uh, Y-chromosome atom, they lived much more recently than was originally believed. So, much more recent from one place. It's not uh, over an extended period of time uh, that we all have a much more recent shared ancestor than what people originally believed so next let's look at anthropology and archaeology these are fairly similar so i'm just i'm putting them together so the naturalistic belief was that society slowly developed over many thousands of years and took even longer to spread around the globe so they expected to see uh whether it's music tools, um, any other uh, thing that we would think of as human culture would develop very slowly, very slow pro- progress over a long period of time. And it would be more regionalized. And then it would slowly spread to the different places around the globe. But like others, this is the exact opposite of what we see. So I'm sharing a quote again. This is not from, um, from a theist, not from someone who believes in God. for mil- For millennia upon millennia, Archaeology shows the same forms of stone utensils, but about 40,000 years ago, a perceptible shift in the handiwork took place. Toolkits leapt in sophistication. Signs of the use of ropes, bone spear points, fish hooks, and harpoons emerged, along with the sudden manifestation of sculptures, paintings, and musical instruments. We also find evidence for long-distance exchange of stones and beads. It's an extraordinary catalog of achievements that seems to have come from nowhere. So, uh, according to this quote, everything w- it was very simple. Things that you would almost expect um, that the apes and other other animals to, to have basic to basic things, rocks for smashing. But then, in a in an almost instant. It leapt and every aspect of culture showed up almost immediately and it showed up almost immediately everywhere around the planet at basically the same time in our history. So according to this, again, it didn't happen slowly. It all happened very quick and spread around the world almost instantly. So that brings us to the fourth so let's look quickly at uh paleontology so that's the study of fossils um, and just the the fossil record um that leads us to today so this one again i'm, I'm going to be very simple so there's something called the cambrian explosion So this was a brief, uh, this was a a certain age in the, in the, in our earth's history, but in this very brief period of time, about 20 million years, most of the 35 animal phyla appear. So the phyla is basically the, the body structure of different uh, creatures. So even today, they, it's broken down into 35 different types. Um, And that's, that's the diversity we see today. But in this one age in about 20, 20 million years, all of these 35 appear. Now there are arguments that some sum there and there's some evidence that some of these existed before the Cambrian age, but ultimately it went from very sparse, very rare amounts of very um, simple very very simple fossils and then in that one brief period of time the complexity just exploded and it exploded all around the globe to where it it just it just was a it basically unexplainable by science they still don't know why Um, According to any naturalistic explanation that this could have happened so quickly, so globally, and that they really don't have much of an explanation if this were not an act of creation by God. So the Cambrian explosion, very good evidence. So, let's move on to uh, organic chemistry. So, um organic chemistry is any the chemistry of any um uh any any molecule, any substance that came from life. So there's there's an aspect within organic chemistry called homochirality. So to to describe chirality, um every molecule has a specific structure. It can be written in in letters and numbers and it can be diagrammed with a model. So, but it's possible for, for, for a a, a molecule that has one written structure to have two real world structures. So they, it can be called right-handed and left-handed. It's the same elements, same components, but they're organized in a different way. Now it it impacts when things uh, interact. Now let me just give you um, uh, a little image. So these two chemicals have the same written structure, but in in practical real world, they bond differently. They form different structures. And um, so in nature, 50% 50% are right-handed and 50% are left-handed. There's no way uh, to, to make one or the other more than the other. But they also bond together completely randomly based on whether they. it's not based on whether right or left-handed. So when they bond um, randomly, they form just random patterns, random almost globs, um, and they're not very practical, especially for life. But when you have something where it's all one chirality when they're all when it's homochirality they form unique structures they form chains which can become very long they can contain vast amounts of information and they are very practical for life so the most famous of these is the structure of DNA so as uh, as DNA holds the information for our body it forms this uh this double helix um, structure that goes throughout our entire body and it's very very long, and um, every single aspect of life has homochirality. But not only does everything that contains life have homochirality, nothing that doesn't have life has hom- has homochirality. So um, these these structures can be incredibly long, and there's absolutely no way that scientists have figured out how to reproduce this. No scientist in any lab under any circumstance has figured out how to produce um, a a homochirality bond without using something that was already alive at one point so look just again so when you talk about such a long chain where it should be 50 50 where the, how it bonds for it to be a long chain of only things that are that are one-handed that's inc- incredibly rare and almost imp- impossible to, to describe by chance so we again we're back to our friend mycoplasma genitalium 580,000 base pairs so that means that All of those base pairs, five hundred and eighty thousand in a row, all have the same chirality. So that's like um, that's basically the odds of this ever happening: is flipping a coin five hundred and eighty thousand times in a row and having it come up heads every single time. If even one of them was tails, then it would completely break the chain and it would it would lose any functionality. So if I told you that this happened, if I told you I flipped a coin 500,000 times and got heads every time, you would never tell me that that happened by chance. You would never tell me it happened by accident. Either I was doing something specific or the coin was rigged to to, to to get the exact same result. It's There's no way that it would happen accidentally. So just to put this, this number in perspective, there are only two to the 67th power, to the 267th power atoms in the entire known universe, not just our earth, solar system, galaxy, even other galaxies, black holes, Everything we know there's only this many atoms in the entire universe compared to the number of times that this um, that this other thing would happen And just to add to this just to show you how, how complex it can get human DNA is 6.4 billion uh, base pairs long so again to have 6.4 billion pairs in a row that are com- that have the exact same chirality absolutely no chance that this happened accidentally. And so people, scientists have studied, you know, what conditions could this have happened? Could this have happened in any way, shape or form? But there's, they scientists have had zero success at producing homochirality from inorganic matter. They've had a a small bit of success with polarized light, but it's only gotten to about 70, 75% chirality. But again, if any of the links are the opposite chirality, the entire thing breaks down. So how do uh, how do scientists explain this? How do, how do they argue that this could possibly happen with from a, from a naturalistic perspective? Time. Well, of course, time is the magical hand waving cure all for any naturalistic explanation. Give it give anything enough time, and by chance it could happen. If the universe is fourteen billion years old. Anything could happen, but let's look at our next field of science to see if that's true. So, when it comes to geology, um, that's what we're going to use to actually date some of these things. So, when it comes to Earth's history um, and, and just how Earth, how long Earth has been habitable, how long, how long ago it would have been possible for for something to live, even smallest microorganisms. It was less than 4 billion years ago was when microorganisms could have first lived on earth. But when we look 3.8 billion years ago, there were already organisms living on earth. So that cuts, uh, this, this reduces the time period in which life could have formed to less than 200 million years. So according to this, life appears to have begun at the earliest possible moment. So, from the moment that Earth could have had organisms, this process had already begun. There were already the beginnings of what appeared, um, to, to be organisms from the beginning. So what do scientists do with this? Do they believe that God created it, that God organized it, that God designed it? No, they still go for some type of naturalistic explanation. Some, uh, scientists even believe that life came to earth from another planet, did it from a meteorite, or maybe intelligent aliens came here, deposited the first organisms. And that is how, um, life first came to earth again, no evidence, complete um, out of left field. There's, there's no explanation for this, no evidence, but because they, because some scientists are predetermined for naturalism, this is how they explain how life could have happened so quickly. So that moves us on to our final field of science, astrophysics. So I got my bachelor's degree in physics. So I saved this for last because it's my personal favorite field. So when it comes to the naturalistic belief um, of what people from the time of Darwin going forward, those who that, that, were, that wanted things to be natural, they believe that the universe is static. That matter and space are constant and steady. The universe is neither expanding nor shrinking. Basically, the way things are now is the way it's always been in the past and the way things always will be in the future. No beginning, no end everything's just steady. However, this changed in the 1920s when Edwin Hubble And some other scientists discovered that the universe is actually expanding. So uh, when things are coming towards you, they look more blue. That's called being blue shifted. But when things are going away from you, it's called being red shifted. And so when we look at all the distant galaxies in every direction from Earth, they all appear red shifted, all appear to be moving away from us. So that's how scientists understood um, that the universe is expanding. Now, this creates a problem for naturalists because if things are expanding, that means if you go far enough back in time, everything had to come back to one basic point. So, um, this is when people started talking about the Big Bang Theory and the the, the scientific postulation that the universe may have had a beginning. But for, for decades, scientists debated this, but in 1965, two scientists first discovered the CMB radiation which proved the Big Bang theory correct. So that when they looked at every direction around uh, around in space, they saw this this background radiation that just was a remnant of the Big Bang, it was exactly what scientists were looking for, and it basically proved this theory correct. And to me, again, this is the greatest um, scientific understanding that's ever happened in terms of proving theism, proving that God exists, because it proves the universe had a beginning. So, if it had a beginning, it's very hard to argue that it didn't have a beginner. If if everything we know, energy, mass time, space. If everything uh, had a beginning, then that means there must be something that acted upon nothing, that acted outside of time and space, that caused our universe to exist. And by definition, that is God. If something's outside of space and time in our universe, from every definition we have, that would be called God. Now, a lot of scientists have understood this, and some who who want a naturalistic explanation have a problem. So that's where Robert J. Stroh, um, an agnostic astrophysicist, has a very famous quote, uh, and that's wonderful about how how problematic the Big Bang theory is for a naturalist. It's a it's a longer quote, but I'm going to read just the whole thing. The seed of everything that has happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, and every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of events that were set in motion at the moment of cosmic explosion. It was literally the moment moment of creation. The universe flashed into being, and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. As stated, this conclusion is distressing to atheistic scientists. To observe a reaction and not be able to document the cause is unsettling. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream he has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So they've they figured out that the universe has a beginning. They think this is a great, wonderful scientific achievement until they realize that this is what theologians have been arguing for, for from the beginning of time so again great evidence for the the existence of god so now that's all the fields of science but i want to add one more thing which basically combines um many of the other fields of science and that's called fine-tuning so this means that we we look at the aspects of the universe and that make it appear that uh, that the universe was made with a purpose for life to exist. So one of the big questions of fine tuning, uh, when it comes to a planet, is how many parameters must be met for life to exist? Temperature, distance, elements, whatever things. What what are the absolute essentials for life? As in, if 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 any of these essentials are not met, life is not possible. So this first started in 1966. Carl Sagan on a famous TV show, he said that there were only he, he said that they were only two that the star had to be a certain size and the planet had to be a certain distance away from the star. So he argued that there were only two parameters. So then we're we're gonna look at the other the other important question. So what are the chances of finding a habitable planet of finding a planet that meets all the the, the qualifications mentioned. So for just two, there are millions, there are maybe even trillions or more. Um, there, There are tons of planets that would meet just those two categories. But in 1988, scientists, many scientists actually got together and tried to figure out and put a real number on this because they knew it was much more than two. So they came up with 36, 36 aspects where every single one of these 36 things must happen in order for life to be possible. So, what are the chances? Uh, It's 1 and 2 to the 66th power is the chances of ever finding a planet that, that has all of those 36 things. Um... I don't have time to go into how they calculated it, but I just know um, people a lot smarter than me made the calculations for, for 2 and 66. So from 1988, they kept going. The invention of computers or the advancement of computers greatly helped this. So by 2004, they were aware of now 322. Again, all 322 must be met to even have the possibility for life to exist. So the chances of finding a planet like that is 1 in 2 to the 940. But they kept going. And now the number is much over a thousand. Over a thousand categories which must be met in order for life to exist. Now, some of them are fairly simple, but some of them are also very, very precise. The gravitational cons- uh, constant, the ratio of dark matter to dark energy, some of those are so close that just one single thing could make the argument for fine tuning. But now we're aware of a th- more than a thousand where if any of these things were outside the acceptable range, life could not exist. So what are the chances? That's one in two to the 3,000. So uh, again, just for reference, two to the 267 atoms in the known universe. And we're talking about one in two to the 3,000 planets. So not only is this true for the number of planets that we have when it comes to that, that bacteria, 500, one in 580,000, uh, if just for, for, um, for things to come in the, for, for the base pairs of DNA to come to the right order and for them to all have the same chirality. Ultimately, when we look at everything, there is just such incredibly strong evidence for the existence of God. So we see even agnostics and other people having, having issues with this fine tuning. So Paul Davies, um, again, an agnostic said, there's powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. So, with just the, the there's so much evidence for design that it's hard to ignore. So a famous Christian scientist, Louis Pasteur said, a bit of science distances one from God, but much science nears one to him. The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the creator. And even Einstein said, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. Now Einstein might've changed some of this later in life, but this is a quote of his. So again, when we look at all these fields of science, they all point to the existence of God. So we can have confidence in our faith, confidence in knowing that there's strong evidence for God's existence. Now, again, we're never gonna be able to prove all of this, there's always going to be some naturalistic explanation, even if they have to talk about aliens coming to earth or something like a multiverse or just us being part of a computer program. There, there, there always going to be some explanation, no matter how ridiculous it might seem, but we know, and we can have confidence that there is strong evidence for the existence of God. Now, this is just one in a series of videos. So I've proven I've shown beyond reasonable doubt that God exists, but that doesn't mean that it's the God of the Bible. So that's why next week I want to show that the Bible is reliable. That the Bible we have today is the Bible that was written back then, and that there's strong evidence that the Bible was written by God. And then uh, two weeks from now, I want to share the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and show that there is strong historical evidence for the resurrection. So I hope if you've stuck with me this far that you'll watch those two videos as well. So if you like this, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop a comment, send me a note, let me know what you thought. And if you'd like to hear more about science and faith, and more about how to put your faith into practice, I hope you'll like, follow, and subscribe to this page. God bless.